direct from the edge of the lunatic fringe, it's The Raleigh James Show. to talk about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this hour. And you know, it's interesting, I'm sure there's no shortage of opinions about the Rock Hall, and it probably comes up in conversation more often than not. But unless you've read the house that Rock built, you don't know the story. And to me, at least personally, much more fascinating than what has happened since the Rock Hall opened in the mid-90s is how it came to be built uh, in Cleveland, for one thing, but just all of the behind-the-scenes stories. And you can you can read it all in the house that Rock built. Norm N. Knight has written it. I've got a link at Raleigh.net to a good price from Amazon. And I guarantee you, even if you don't think you're interested in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, if you've ever thought about how projects come together and you sometimes wonder why some don't and uh, why is there no this or that or how they do and it's more than magic this book will uh, will answer all your questions and more and give you some great behind the scenes uh, info as well and of course who better to know all the behind the scenes info than Norm and Knight of course, you know Norm if you are any type of oldies fan at all. Not even possible that you don't. But just in case, you're about to meet him. And boy, I have a big debt of gratitude to this man, and he doesn't even know it. So, Norm, welcome to WGN Radio. Well, Raleigh, what a joy to be on your program. I, I truly enjoy it. You know, I was just sitting here thinking the fact that the first time I was in the studios of WGN, Goes back already. I'm looking back to November of 1974 when my first book came out 47 years ago. Then four years later, in November of 78, with my second book, I came back to visit the studios of WGN. And now, after all these years, I'm finally back on the air yeah. on your wonderful station. And what a joy to have a chance to chat with you. Oh, absolutely. And I want to talk about Rock On a moment, because for individuals who weren't in radio then and before the mid-70s, it's hard to really comprehend what a dearth of information there was. Uh, sure, the Whitburns were getting started, but that was just at that point a, a statistical compilation. When Rock On came out, it was manna from heaven. I remember <laughs> so well. I still have my original copy, too. <laughs> Really? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, years later, there are people who said, well, you know, it didn't have this, it didn't have that. Well, this was wrong, well, that was wrong. And I thought to myself, you yeah, know what? Considering what it took to put a compendium like that together in the mid-70s, it is a work of art, and I would have been lost without it. So thank you for writing that. Well, well Raleigh, you know, the interesting thing when that book first came out, 
It was selling for, believe it or not, it was over 600 pages for 12.95, which mm-hmm. was at that time was a really high price. But the biggest thing was there were no books on rock and roll at that particular time. Mine was one of the first to come out, and they had no idea where to put it. Where do you put it? Under a biography? Do you put it under nonfiction? And so every time I'd, I'd go to a city and would go to the bookstore. Uh, people didn't know where to get the book, and, and no one really thought that the book would be a success because who cares about rock and roll? But what I did was I contacted all these individuals, most of them, and every single time if I talked to Frankie Valley or if I talked to someone else, I showed them the text, uh, Les Paul or any of these people that are in the book, and I said, how does this look to you? And, and they looked at it and they said, well, you have to change this or change that. Then I had them sign the bottom of the page to make sure that the, the information was factual because so many times people had books come out and they were hearsay and they, they really didn't get to the, to the crux of the, the whole idea of what the book was all about. But fortunately, the book was, uh, it was welcome, welcome arms. Everybody loved it. And we went out to Rock On 2, Rock On Almanac, and now finally, after all these years, the house that Rock built. Yeah. Now, about Rock On 1 again, the first book, what was beautiful about that is it wasn't just stories about the big hit makers of the day. You had a lot of the doo-wop artists. You had every members of every member of the group. And, I mean, this was a Bible. And so I, I, I got to ask, what possessed you to write it? Well, you know what? When I was a young man living here in Cleveland, I used to listen on the radio to Alan Freed, of course, the the guy that popularized the phrase rock and roll, and so Mm -hmm. many other great disc jockeys. And every time they had guests on the show, and they would talk to them, and they'd say uh, where they got their name from, I wrote that down. I had no idea, no idea what I would do with all this information. And the interesting thing was that in March of 1973, when I came to New York City to work for CBS-FM at that particular time, I was doing an interview with a writer from the Daily New York Daily News by the name of Val Adams, and he, he was asking me all kinds of questions about myself, my background. He was going to do a story on me. And one of the last things he said was, uh, by the way, is there anything else you're doing? And as a throwaway, I said, yeah, I'm working on a book on rock and roll. Uh, you know, I, I really didn't have a book. I was just, it was, a, it was something I thought I'd do. The very next day, I got a call from a, a editor, Jay Acton, and he called me up. He said, what's this thing about a book on rock and roll? And I said, wow. So we had lunch, <laughs> and he said, uh, we'd like to publish the book. And he, I had to work very diligently to be able to come up with the manuscript, but fortunately I had all those notes, and it took me several months. But then uh, th- this took place in 73, and the book came out in November of 74. And uh, that's how, so whenever somebody asks you a question, you never know that response that you're going to make, what's going to happen. So uh, watch what you say. (laughs) Oh, oh, yeah. And now I know, of course, on the inside cover, you've got all the signatures of everybody from uh, Neil Sedeca to Gary U.S. Bonds and on and and on. And you know, one of the wonderful things, Raleigh, i got to share this with you. When the book first came out in November of 74, uh, in New York City, there was a, uh, they were doing the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, uh, a play at the Beacon Theater in New York City. And I was the guy out front that, uh, you know, when uh, all the people pulled up with the limousines, uh, Mary Travers or this one or that one, whoever it was, uh, I'd, I'd be standing out there interviewing them. And uh, one of the persons who showed up that night was John Lennon. And afterwards, we all after went to a party at the, the club, the Hippopotamus. And uh, I sat down with John, and, and he looked at my book, and he because he was so fascinated with American rock and roll. And he said to me, wow, I have to have a copy of this book. I said, well, look, I'll tell you what, would you sign it? So on the inside page, he drew a caricature. 
He wrote Rock On, John Lennon, 1974. And I thought to myself, that's amazing. So then, later on when I met Ringo, he signed it. George Harrison, he signed it. Then I got Keith Richards. I got Roy Orbison, Carl Perkins, Chuck Berry, Fats Domino, Little Richard, Bo Diddley, uh, you name it. Les Paul, Four Seasons, everybody has said this. Now this book is called The Holy Grail of Rock and Roll Books because every single person in rock and roll signed the book. Some of them with funny comments, but Lennon started the whole thing by signing the book, and and that book is in my possession, and and I I cherish it because of all the people that have the, 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 the framework people of rock and roll, the Everly Brothers, you name it. Everybody signed this book. And you know what? A lot of people that, I, that have my book to this day, I, I, I sometimes go out and then they show up with a tattered copy and they say, you know, I've had this book since 1973. Look at all the signatures I put in this book. <laughs> so it's kind of interesting that a lot of people went and did the very same thing. Yeah. Oh, and I, like I say, I've had mine as getting tattered, but I figured any guy <laughs> who includes the genies after Gene and Eunice is okay by me. So it is, it is, uh, it is just terrific, and thank you for that. Now, I, I got to say, when I heard you wrote The House That Rock Built, I had to read it just because you wrote it at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have my issues with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame that we can talk about or not. But mm-hmm. I got to tell you, so I didn't come in as a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame fan necessarily. But this mm-hmm. book is fascinating. It's just, it, I literally couldn't put it down because there are, is such insight into how any project gets built, let alone this one, and what it took to make this happen and make this happen in Cleveland. And I am pleased to realize that everybody knew it. This would not be in Cleveland if it weren't for you. Well, thank you. But you know, it's, it's interesting because my first idea for this book started about the spring of 1982 when I was working in New York. I talked over with a bunch of my friends in the industry and I thought, well, well, you know, do you think there'd be any interest in doing a book about, uh, about a rock and roll hall of and I talked to my good friend uh, Dick Clark, who wrote uh, a couple of comments in several of my books, and, and he liked the idea. And I talked to several other people, and we were going to work on probably trying to put a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland. Why? Because many of our performers, like Little Richard or Dion or Benny King or Tony Williams of the Platters, they all talked highly about Cleveland, Ohio. But we all started getting busy. And with, with other projects, and it just fell by the wayside, and nothing really happened. And then, in, in, uh, as, as the years were going by, a uh, lot of my uh, f- family members, especially my nieces and nephews, they were saying, "Uncle Norm, why don't you go and do a book?" You know, you see, what I did was when I got involved with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1985 here in, uh, I mean, in New York City, I, again, I kept copious notes every single time we had a meeting, every single time, because I was on the Rules and Nominating Committee. And again, it's just like my first book of Rock On, I had no idea what I was going to do with this information, but there it was. And then all of a sudden, uh, things fell into place. On January 22nd, 1968, I appeared on the syndicated Mike Douglas show, and a featured performer that week was Bobby Darren, and Leslie Gore was on the show, and Leslie and I became friends uh, at that particular time, and we kept in touch. And then when I finally moved to New York in 73, I had her on my show several times, and we talked and everything else like that. And then uh, I, I thought, you know what, maybe there is something here. Maybe there is something I should be able to do about a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, because in earnest, people started getting involved in New York, when they formed the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Foundation in 1985. And I, and I said, you know, maybe there's a story here. And I started digging. And, and the biggest thing was, six years ago, 
is when it really came to fruition because here's an interesting thing. I flew to New York in 2015, in May of 2015, to, to, I met with my literary agent. We went on shopping around and Time Life was going to do the book. And I was so excited. This is a Wednesday and we were going to go on Friday to sign contracts. And I went to, the, to Time Life on Friday, and we were told that the lady that we were talking to was let go the day before. Ugh. So I was the, the air was taken right out of me, and, and I came back to Cleveland, and I sat here, and I said, there goes my idea for a book. And then I looked around on the shelf, and I saw Kent State University Press, and they had a, a couple of wonderful books out. I called them up out of the clear blue sky. We started talking and everything else. Then I called a very, very good writer in this town, I have a gentleman by the name of Tom Farron, and Tom was a brilliant writer. He worked for the Cleveland Plain Dealer as an editor, and I said, Tom, I would like to work with you because there's so much information, and he worked. Uh, we, had, we started interviewing so many people, all the people in New York, all the people in Cleveland, traveling around, doing all these interviews, and trying to put the pieces together and find out what is the real story of how and why Cleveland got the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I will say two things Two things made it happen in Cleveland. Number one, the enthusiasm for the people in northeastern Ohio. And number two, money talks. And mm-hmm. they were able to, a friend of mine, Mike Benz, and other people like that uh, who in Cleveland that got the people behind raising the money. And when the, and when the book started put, being put together, I reached out to Stevie Van Zandt, a good friend of mine. I said, Stevie, of course, he was in the Sopranos and Bruce Springsteen's band and everything else. I said, you're a guy that really knows rock and roll. Would you write the foreword to the book? He said, yes. I got a, a lovely lady by the name of Jenna McCosker to supply with great pictures. And it all started coming together. And for the final product, I am so proud of this book because the, the, what it does, it pulls back the curtain on New York and Cleveland and shows how the two cities work together to make this happen. And most of all, I'm very, very proud of Northeastern Ohio fans who on January 20th, 1986 in USA Today, they called 110,000 phone calls to say we want the Hall of Fame, and later 660,000 signed a petition. So this is an homage and thank you to the fans and the people involved. And that's what it's all about for me to say I was able to do a book that will live on for perpetuity to tell the story of how and why Cleveland got the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and the bumpy road from the time that the Hall of Fame opened in 1995 in September to the time, uh, uh, I mean, from the time that we they got involved with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame until it opened up, because it was, i got to tell you, uh, Raleigh, it was a touch-and-go situation, because when we had our first meetings in 1985, uh, about building a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, from 1985 up until uh, 1995, that 10-year span when the Hall of Fame opened, there were so many times that Cleveland could have lost it, but they hung in there, they worked hard, and it is just a very, very interesting, exciting story. Yeah, it's a wonderful chronicle, and not only could Cleveland have lost it, but when you take a look at what it took to put it anywhere, the idea could have been lost. There might have not even been a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, so yes, this will live on in perpetuity, and once again, you've uh, you've written just a gem. I'm talking to Norm N. Knight. Of course you know who he is. If not, well, normnknight.com. I've got a link on Raleigh.net. I've also got a link on Raleigh.net to the house that Raleigh built. And as I say, even if you're, uh, you know, sitting there saying, well, why do I care about this? 
I find this to be such a testament to putting a project like this together and being able to bring it to a city. And that was certainly not easy, but doing it at all, because sometimes we say, you know, why isn't there a better Hall of Fame for this or that or what other? This is not something that's easy to do. And I think uh, long after we're gone, Norman Knight's book is going to probably be the biggest legacy to how this came to be. Rock, roll, rock, roll. You take some music, music, sweet flowing music, some moving and grooving, rock and roll. Dance, take some hot beats, drums, beats. Thank you, I'm Riley James, and of course the showman, General Johnson, it will stand, and yes it has, it's standing with a beautiful building in Cleveland. One of my favorite quotes in the book was when they were going for the budgeting, you didn't think we'd put a line item called Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, did you? Well, they didn't, but it came to be, and more, you can read all about it in the house that Rock built. We will continue to talk with Norm N. Knight. We'll take your calls as well. 888-876-5593 is 8888 Raleigh on WGN Radio. I'm Riley James. That's Billy Warden as Domino. Score 60 Minute Man from 1951 on Federal. That's the record that Alan Freed appropriated the term rock and roll as it would apply to music. And uh, yet, yet, the Dominoes nominated once, not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Billy Ward, not even thought of. Now, lead singer Clyde McFadder's in. And of course, this gets into a whole discussion of who is, who isn't. But regardless of where you fall, you will be fascinated when you read The House That Rock Built. Uh, you know, why Cleveland? That to me is pretty obvious. But what wasn't obvious was the behind the scenes stories of how that came to be, including the number of cities that also were vying for the honor, although it seemed much half-heartedly. Norman Knight wrote the book. I've got a link at Raleigh.net to Norm's website and to the house that Rock built. If you want to go direct, normnknight.com. And we are talking with Norman Knight, which I am just thrilled about. And so I, I got to ask your thoughts. How did 60 Minute Man and Billy Ward and the Dominoes not make it into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame yet? Well, you know, there, there's, there's a, uh, there, this is a subject that I'm going to really have to get into soon because I was uh, involved initially. See, I, I came on board on the Rules of Nominations committee in October of 1983 and uh, the thing of it is that I'm, I'm very very concerned there are so many performers from the early years of rock and roll that should be in the rock and roll hall of fame I'll give you a few uh, Paul Anka Neil Sedaka yes. Gary U.S. Bonds yes. uh, Connie Francis yes. I mean uh, there's just such a uh, you know I, I have my own strong list of people and why see here's the thing 
when you have to choose someone to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, you should have the three eyes. Number one, the impact they had when they first hit the charts. Yes. Number two, were they innovators? Yes. And number three, did they influence other people? Those are the three criteria that I've always gone by that people should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And there's a long list of people that should be there, and, 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 I, and I just am very, very concerned over the fact that these people are, are you know, are, are forgotten. They've, they've, they've closed the door on, on, the, on the 50s and early 60s. It's like, uh, you know, just the, the, the latter years. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I respect all the people that they choose and everything else. That's wonderful. But... Just like in baseball, what they should do is they should have a couple from the 50s, a couple from the 60s, and then who else they want to nominate to get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because there are so many deserving people that should be in and are not, and it is a travesty that they're not. I agree wholeheartedly, and I know that they've now separated the museum from the hall, but to me, for instance, while I never would have bought a Pat Boone record to save my soul, to ignore the impact he had on general sure. market listeners, and also, you know, those who, of course, you, you know it better than me, no doubt, who consider it all racist and all that, they forget that Randy Wood, the owner of Dot Records, was also the owner of Randy's Record Shop, and he's the guy Absolutely. who sponsored the WLAC. CRNB. He knew yeah. that LAC wouldn't play that in the day. He knew that he had to get some, you know, clean kid from Belmont College to uh, uh, present it to white teens. And without a Pat Boone, many of these songs would have never been heard on a mass appeal uh, absolutely. stage. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, but I must share one quick thing with yes. you because this is a, an aside about the book and everything else. Yes. Uh, in May of 1985, I got a phone call from a gentleman in Cleveland called my name, Mike Benz. He was heading up a group. He said, we want you to come to Cleveland. And they were having a meeting. And I flew to Cleveland, and I met with a bunch of people there. And they said, listen, we'd like to be able to have you. We know you're on the Rules of Nominating Committee. You meet with all these people. We'd like for you to be able to talk to the people in New York to see if they would consider Cleveland as a site for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I said, sure, I'll do that. And I flew back to New York got to LaGuardia Airport, made a phone call to Ahmed Erdogan. Ahmed, of course, became the uh, chairman of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Foundation and a legend in the business. And I said, Ahmed, I'd like to come by your office and see you. So I went right to his office, walked in his office, sat down, said to Ahmed, would you consider Cleveland as a site for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? He said, absolutely not, because Mayor Koch has promised us a, a brownstone on 42nd Street, and we're just going to put plaques on a wall and pictures on there, and we're going to have an induction ceremony every year, and that's going to be the extent of it. And if I had said, stood up, thanked him for his uh, time, and walked out the door, you see, but I saw that window of opportunity closing, and then I said, Ahmed, consider the fact of Alan Freed doing the Moondog Coronation Ball there in 1952. Consider the fact that it's a neutral city. It's between Chicago and Pittsburgh and Detroit. I must have hit the right button because he called out to the outer office to his assistant there, who was the attorney, Susan Evans, and said, Susan, when's our next meeting? And she said, July 18th, when our next board meeting. So he says, tell Norman that he can bring his people in. But my, the point of this story is this. Never, ever take no for an answer. Because had I accepted that no from him and walked out the door, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is a brownstone in New York City on 42nd Street. So anytime you're involved with a project that you truly believe in, fight for it. Because guess what? You can maybe make it happen. 
Oh, that's so true. And, you know, as you're, as you're telling that story, and when I read it in, in the book as well, I thought to myself, oh, my God, left to their own devices, this would be closer to a backyard barbecue than what it actually be, became. And uh, But, of course, as you point out in the book, Cleveland wasn't the only city that wanted it. Now, what I really loved is Sam Phillips had all sorts of reasons to put it in Memphis, and he was almost a sore looter, but ultimately, in later years, he came around. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, you know, if you, whatever city you come from, you, you have to take pride in that city, and you want your city to... And there are, there are legitimately Chicago, Memphis, uh, New Orleans, uh, Philadelphia, New York, that justify considering them. But, but it all came down to, the, like I said earlier, that the, the, the two things, the enthusiasm of the people that would want it and the being able to raise the money because... You know, there was a lot of money involved at this particular time at the outset. And, you know, if, if you don't have the money, you can't build the, the, the facility. So, and you saw in the book how, how these things work with people trying to get extra money involved and, and, and make this thing happen. And it really was a, a concerted effort by so many people to make this actually happen. And they did. No, I don't think there was any other city. There are plenty of interest, but I don't think there was any other city who really was willing to put their monies where their mouth was or even try to do that. Were there any other contenders that you thought, wow, maybe they'll get it? No, I, I didn't. And you know, the interesting thing, as, 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 a, as a summation of all of this, it cost $92 million to build the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. $199 million annually economic impact for Northeastern Ohio. Twelve million visitors, 80% of them from out of town, $2 billion generated for Cleveland's uh, in the the Cuyahoga County. We have 570,000 visitors in in the year 2018 alone, $127 million annually spent by Rock Hall visitors, 1,800 jobs were generated with almost $60 million in wages, and finally, $36.5 $36.5 million economic impact when they have the induction ceremonies, which will be taking place again this year, October 30th. So a $92 million investment, which was so high, but the payoff in the bottom line, and that's the thing that I'm so proud of, you know, more so than anything else, the economic impact that, that this had on northeastern Ohio and my hometown of Cleveland. Yeah, and that wasn't lost on a lot of the players, even players who their kids had to educate them what rock and roll really really meant, but they got it. And that's uh, mm-hmm. that's in big part thanks to you and others on the committee who made it a reality. We're talking with Norman Knight. NormanKnight.com is the website. I've got a link at Raleigh.net to that and to the house that Rock built, which you can get on Amazon. And I guarantee you, you will learn something that you didn't know about when it comes to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and a lot of this is just fascinating backstory. The return of spring means the return of biking and golfing and gardening. Well, unless aches and pains are holding you back. If that's you, try Herbal Active's high-performance CBD-infused bombs and lotions. Their time-release formulation provides extended relief, all-natural, non-GMO, THC-free. Try it risk-free. They have a money-back guarantee. Herbal Active is giving WGN listeners 25% off all CBD products using promo code WGN25. Go to WGNCBD.com. That's WGNCBD.com. Promo code WGN25 for 25% off from WGN Radio. Oh, 
James, and yes, the Platters are inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I guarantee you not for anything on federal like Vuviabi. Probably a lot of their Mercury stuff and their Music Horse stuff, however, but yeah, I doubt anyone on the nominating committee ever heard Vuviabi, but uh, that's my favorite by them anyway. Talking to Norm N. Knight, Mr. Music, a title he richly deserves. Yes, from Rock On, which I've still got in front of me, the Illustrated Encyclopedia of Rock and Roll, through The House That Rock Built, Norman Knight and Tom Farron, and forward by Stevie Van Zandt. And yes, we will take your calls, though I'd uh, probably rather just hog Norm here. <laughs> 888-876-5593-8888-Raleigh, if you, uh, if you want to join us. And it's, uh, it's just, I can tell it was a labor of love for you, but your notes are so co- copious on the house that Rock built. You really, in many ways, are truly the historian of this project. Yeah, you know that that that's the thing with me. I, I for all my life I've always done that. I've I've written down things all and you know a lot of people kid me in fact what I always do every single day is I call people up when it's their birthday or if there's a certain thing that's going on, I'll say that I'll call them up and they say, "Did you know that on this date such and such happened or this happened?" And people say, "Oh, who cares? Who cares?" But that's how I've been. And and I I started doing that way back in 1972 starting collecting information mm-hmm. like that. And 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 that's where it, you know, and that's when when I was, went to the very first meeting of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Rules and Nominating Committee back in 1983. I sat there in that room and I looked around the room. I see Ahmed Erdogan, I see Jerry Wexter, I see all the top people in the business, John Hammond, all these people. I'm, I'm right down all their names. I look at the clock and say, "Okay, it's two o'clock." And when we disperse, it's three thirty. And it was on the second floor. What are we talking? Why did I write that down? I don't know. And then the next time we had a meeting, the same thing. So when it was time to write the book nobody knew they couldn't remember what day it was that we met they couldn't remember anything so for me to go to my notes and look and see everything every single thing that was discussed every single person that was there it made it a lot easier to be able to write the book and write the true history of it because uh, I was able to keep those copious notes. And without you, I think it's fair to say that this couldn't have been written. It would have been people's recollections for sure, but it wouldn't have been a document that really kind of codifies what this was. And the political machinations are fascinating as far as that goes. And uh, the money raising, for instance, and uh, what had to be done. And the political connections, even with uh, with Ahmed Erdogan's Middle Eastern ties to uh, a mm-hmm. representative from Cleveland. I mean, it's it's just uh, Congresswoman Mary Rose Oker. Yes. Yeah, she she had the connection with him, and and little things like that, and and that's why you know because again, there's a lot of talk. You know, uh, you know the the other thing that's interesting. Every it's the signature of the city because, like in Seattle, you have the Space Needle, the Eiffel Tower in Paris, Statue of Liberty in the, in New York City. But even like they had the NFL draft here a couple of weeks ago, what did they spotlight? They were playing uh, riffs from uh, Rock Around the Clock. They were showing the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and every single time there's a national thing, they always focus in on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So it's become a signature part of Cleveland. So for for perpetuity, that's how it's going to be, and people have an opportunity to see. 
Cleveland, oh, that's where the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is. And, and, and that's the thing that is so exciting for the people. It's a blue-collar town. People have something that they can take pride in. And to have a, play a role in being able to make this a reality is something that I'm very, very grateful and thankful for. And, and like I said, this is my homage to the city of Cleveland and uh, Northeast Ohio and all its fans. I would agree. And, you know, when you mention it's a blue-collar town, it's also a radio town. And while every town has a radio history, no doubt, there are certain towns where radio was super important, especially to teens. And Cleveland is high on that list. And, of course, Milt Maltz really rose to the occasion, as I'd expect, and uh, John Chaffee and everybody else at Mallwright who was involved with this. And that that clearly helped get over 100,000 phone calls to USA Today. That's for for sure. But it's... It's, uh, it's just the perfect place. Now, I've heard that the museum is now separated from the hall. And yeah, they, they have the museum at, at, the, at the college, at, at the facility there, uh, where you can go and you can uh, all kinds of uh, things are there. They have the posters and that and documents and papers and everything else like that. And, uh, and and that's that's another thing because at the Hall of Fame, the experience and, and to go to the Hall of Fame and just to walk on, through the floors and and see all the different displays and all the different things, they do such a terrific terrific job of, of telling the story of rock and roll. But if you're a scholar, if you want the history, if you want, then you go to the uh, the museum, the, uh, the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, where they have it at the college where they have all the information, the documents, everything else like that. And, and hopefully what I'd like to do, and we're working on it uh, down the road, because I have a, an unbelievable list of interviews of people that I've had a chance to talk to, Lieber and Stoller, Jerry Wexter, uh, all the, the Bee Gees, you know, all these different people make this uh, one day a part of the, the, the whole experience. So if somebody wanted to learn something about a doo-wop group or anything else wanted to hear uh, uh, Richard Blandon of the Dubs or some of the uh, or uh, any of the great uh, doo-wop singers of the past, Johnny Maestro, any of those people. That's all on tape. They'll be able to experience it and see it and, and all kinds of things. So, so it's a, it's a twofold thing. They can come to Cleveland and they can visit the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and the museum is one thing, but then go where the archives are yeah. and be able to see all the things that you can have if you were writing a book or wanting to learn something, it's all there. Oh, and that, that's my wish as well. There are so many stories. Uh, a lot of people talk about the Paola hearings and, and Dick Clark, but few people have ever gotten into the importance of bandstand to stop a rolling hit. If an mm-hmm. independent distributor wanted a hit across the nation all at once, they needed bandstand, and why? And those are stories that have not been codified yet, and I I am counting on you to do that, Norman. <laughs> Thank you. And you know what? Another thing I'm so proud of, uh, I mean, when you mentioned Dick Clark, because when my book was coming out, he never put his name attached to anything, and he had no idea what this book was going to be like, but he, he lent his name to my first book. And then mm-hmm. when my second book came out, who did I have write the introduction? Wolfman Jack. And then when my third book came out, which had to deal with the MTV generation, MTV allowed me to use their logo on the cover of the book, and all the MTV video jocks became a part of the book. And, you know, so you had some, and like the latest with Stevie Van Zandt, so you had some heavyweight people in the industry thinking they, 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 they put their names on my book because they believed in the product, and yeah. that's what makes me very, very proud that you, you go for quality. 
and being able to make sure that it's correct. And, and, and I must say, Raleigh, I got to say this. You are a delightful, delightful lady. I have never had the opportunity. I know about you. I know <laughs> about your, your experience and your career and everything like that. Uh, but uh, you have conducted for, I've done a lot of interviews, a lot of interviews. But this, I have to tell you, was one of the most enjoyable interviews I've ever done. You really know your music. You really know how to make a person feel comfortable. And I truly, truly enjoy the experience sharing this hour with you and, and your listeners. Oh, and right back at you. I hope we can do it again. But in the meantime... Anytime you need me. Oh, wow. Anytime... I'll be there for you, okay? I'm going to take you up on that. Thank you, Norman Knight. It's been a pleasure. So we'll pick it up right there next hour. I'm Raleigh James. Monday Night Trivia starts in moments right here on WGN Radio.